It has been two years, eight months, and eight days since I last treated a patient. I'm here with Brandy Wilkins of PT. Thank you for joining me today, Brandy. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before we dive in, I, I tell everybody that I interview, um, this is not edited. Um, it's certainly not standard in podcasting world, but I do that because uh, for me, I look at real life is never as clean as we want it to be, certainly not as clean as what social media likes, makes it look like. And I like to keep that that level of um, sloppiness uh, live. So if something falls, weird sounds or tripping over words, don't worry about it. I'm sure I've done it way more than you will in this interview. I just like to give people the heads up for that. No, I appreciate that. I, I actually appreciate that it's going to be raw and um, and real and hopefully relatable for people. Yeah, that's, that is another side benefit that I try to go for with it. Great. Uh, I'd like to hear what your background is. Um, I mean, the, the profession, your, your education, I know you've, you've evolved into some, some business side of things as well. Um, so yeah, I, I, I want to hear the story. I know most of, most of my listeners are, are here because of storytelling. So this is your chance to shine. Give us, give us your whole, your whole deal. Yeah. So back when I was born, no, I'm just kidding. I won't go back that far. <laughs> Um, but I am a doctorally prepared physical therapist. I started out with a um, bachelor's of biology because I always knew I wanted to do PT. But the interesting thing is back when I went to undergrad, I thought I was going to get a bachelor's in PT. Um, so this was back in 98. And once I got there, I realized that the class that the class that entered in 97 was the last one to get a bachelor's. So here I was in undergrad, like, okay, I can't get a PT. Now what I'm going to do? So I picked biology because I, I had the most courses that would get me to the PT, the anatomies and the chemistries and all that stuff that you needed to get into PT. So at that time, PT was a master's degree. So um, once I finished my bachelor's, I went to get my master's in PT and later on went back to get a transitional doctorate. Started out in acute care and hospital-based outpatient did some um, PRN and long-term acute care and uh, always wanted to be a generalist, be able to treat any patient that came to me. Uh, I was a traveler for about four years and ended up in the Atlanta area. And long story short, over a series of years, transitioned into um, healthcare quality. So away from the bedside, but still interacting with patients and affecting patient care, patient safety, just from a behind the scenes, broad, uh, broad view where I touch all the different departments that are in a hospital. So pharmacy and nursing and therapy and environmental services and dietary food services, all of that, and really working to keep patients safe, just away from direct patient care. Interesting. Okay. Um, so I have a, I have a couple follow-up questions. Uh, one, you'd mentioned, you know, looking at the concept of the last graduating class for PT as a bachelor's. Um, I, I was a rehab tech at the time, uh, and I was working with somebody who was one of the last graduating classes for bachelor's. Now, from that point, I knew a lot of people over time who then transitioned from bachelor's to doctorate. Uh, and I kind of know what that journey looks like, but I'm not, I've never heard master's to doctorate. What what was the steps or what, what else was required to go from master's to doctorate? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So for my master's degree, I went to Ohio State. And at the time they were preparing for the doctorate, but they hadn't gotten the CAPT approval yet. So they were integrating some classes into our master's program, but couldn't call it a doctorate at that time. And so I, when I went back to get my doctorate about two years later, then I had to do like um, diagnostics, okay, like how to how to diagnose as a self referral, um, or the word is escaping me now, but direct direct access, mm, yeah, um, from a direct access perspective. So diagnostics, um, more research since it was a doctorate, it wasn't a like a dissertation or anything like that, but more like a capstone, and. There was a couple more classes, but because Ohio State had prepared us so much for the doctorate, mm-hmm. I only had to take like a handful of classes to make that transition. So it's a little bit different than others that transition from the right. master's to the doctorate. Cool. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. It, I was kind of curious about that. I the I graduated from Indiana University, and at that point, it was very firmly in the doctorate territory, but there was discussions about... Like we even had in class, like what's the difference between a master's and a doctorate? Because I'm seeing a lot of fluff classes that that's really the only thing that took it. I'm like, this is much more expensive. This is an entire year of school. And you're having me take classes like business ethics that didn't used to be in the master's. I get it. <laughs> business ethics is important, but do I need to really pay for that right now? Anyway, yeah, uh, so exactly. it, that makes sense then. But like, because I've, I've always been kind of curious, like what is... What does the world look like from master's to doctorate and PT that wasn't just in hindsight looking back at what it would have been? So yeah, it's, it's more of, of being a doctoring profession from the diagnostic perspective. But back then, when ABTA was trying to make everyone go towards that, um, that's how they were differentiating it. But honestly, I haven't seen a lot of difference in pay than my yeah. master's compared yeah. counterparts, or you know. I don't know. It, it, it sometimes it comes in handy to be able to say to a to a physician or something like that. I'm a doctor. You're a doctor. We can have this conversation. Mm-hmm. But other than that, is I mean, there's some master prepared therapists that are more skilled clinically than I am, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah I th- this is an extremely unpopular opinion among PTs, but I was the one who was like, I don't want a doctorate. I don't need it. It's not necessary. A master's is fine. I don't want to pay all this extra tuition. People are like, but respect in the field. And I go, I know a lot of physicians that lose respect if I try to go by doctor than if I was just Adam. So right. I, 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 and I know that that is wildly unpopular of an opinion, but you know, you want to talk raw. That's, that's kind of where <laughs> I've always been. No, I mean, that's real though. Cause that's how I felt too. Um, and even though I have my doctorate now, I don't feel any more, skilled or qualified than those who have been in the field for 20 years and they have their master's, right? Sure. Um, sure. It has maybe helped me with maybe one job in my career, but they don't okay. say, oh, you have a doctorate. Let me pay you 15 grand more. <laughs> yeah. So you have all those extra student loans, but we're not going to pay more. Great. Yeah. And so I don't even know if now, and this is going to be unpopular too, but I don't know if now I would recommend to like a cousin or a friend hey, you need to go to PT school. Yeah. Now, if they want to go to PT school, great. I'll support you. I'll help you, give you advice, all of that stuff. But I don't even think now that I'm encouraging people to do it because of the amount of 
loans and mm -hmm. debt and the cost of the education. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I've been quite vocal about that myself. Like that's it. Finance was not the reason I left the position position. There's many reasons, but it's really difficult to advocate for a five figure salary when you have mid to low six figure student loan debt with right. interest rates that are insane. Like it just, it's really <clears throat> difficult to justify that. Um, so I, I, I feel, feel you on that. Now, going back to what you were saying about master's versus, versus doctorate and how experience in the field can mean so much more, you brought up health quality. Um, tell me about that. Like, what does that mean in terms of what do you, what do you do as a job? What is it, what are you focused on? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because a lot of people don't even know that healthcare quality is um, a thing, but um, and to, I'm going to answer your question, but to, to back up, the reason I'm in healthcare quality is because if everyone leaves the bedside and no one stays in healthcare at all, who's going to be around to take care of my generation, the generation that follows me, right, when, when we need healthcare? Um, healthcare quality is a broad umbrella term to describe the act of keeping the patient safe and creating systems that make healthcare safer for patients and our frontline workers. So that could be um, a performance improvement specialist. It could be a clinical navigator. It could be a patient experience specialist. It could be clinical data analytics. It could be... Um, Clinical informatics, like working on the EMR to make that safer for the clinicians, less clicks, easier access to things. I mean, it could be health equity and diversity, equity, and inclusion. So there's a lot that falls under that umbrella. But at the end of the day, it's how do we make the healthcare system safer so patients leave better than when they came hmm. and so that our frontline workers don't get burnout, right? Yeah. Because like I said, if everyone leaves the field and people are leaving, not just the bedside, but leaving healthcare altogether. Yeah. And so if the healthcare system totally falls apart, then what's going to be there for people who have chronic illnesses or need, need help. Um, so my current role is a quality risk director at an inpatient rehab facility. So I oversee the quality department, functional outcomes, patient experience, patient safety. I help prevent harm, but then investigate if harm does happen and really work with all the different teams. I, you know, have um, influence over nursing and therapy and pharmacy and environmental services and food services and maintenance because all of that touches the patient in some way. Makes sense, but that is a lot to juggle. Like, how yeah. <laughs> how do you parse your day with so many various departments that you're having to take a look at and have influence on? Yeah, I mean, it can be hard and it can be heavy um, at times, um, especially if something doesn't go exactly right um, for the patient. Um, but, you know, each day is a little bit different and prioritizing what's the most important for that day, right? So I could have my plan of the things I need to get done, but something else takes precedent. Like if a patient is dissatisfied with something or if um, the clinical teams are struggling to get people in for the day to even see the patients, right? If people are calling out or if staffing is a challenge. And so my day-to-day -day looks different depending on what's going on. I suppose that makes sense when, when there's various directions <laughs> like that, you got to prioritize your time, right? 
um that's that's beautiful though like there's it, it i've i've been pretty open about the the concept that we've tried to make a lot of iterative changes on healthcare in general but mm -hmm. specifically in our wing with orthopedics and rehab mm -hmm. medicine and it's it's not really working and i've been vocal about we i just burn it back down, burn it down so we can build it back up from the ashes into something that actually works for patients. But right. it's nice to hear that there's people like you who are still trying to make make things work the way that they should within the system that we have. So I, I appreciate what you're doing with that. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. I mean, yeah, trying to make a difference in my subset of the world and, you know, with the patients and the colleagues that I work with, because you know, no one goes to healthcare to get worse. Right. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I haven't looked at the statistics on iatrogenesis. And for the listeners who who are not healthcare prof professionals, that is effectively you get sicker or die because of your healthcare experience. Uh, but I do remember when I was in PT school that it was the fifth leading cause of death in the country. And that was shocking to me. I don't know what it is today. I would like to hope that it's a little bit better. But yeah. Like, like you said, people don't go to healthcare to get worse. Yeah. And the unfortunate thing is that preventable harm still occurs. Yeah. Right. And some of it, a lot of it is not that healthcare workers fault. Right. Right. It's the systems that under which they're working. Yeah. And um, so part of my role and part of the role in healthcare quality in general is to fix the system. That makes sense. In, I mean, some, in some way to to make it easier for people to do the right thing and hard to do the wrong thing. And it's not because people are trying to do the wrong thing, right? right? But making the system easier to navigate for the patient and for the person who's helping them. Yeah. It, it, I mean, and, I, and I've seen that. Yes, people do make mistakes, but when they're catastrophic mistakes, those are so much more rare. And yet when somebody dies or is injured due to healthcare, it, that's kind of, that was my observation too. It was very rarely a human being making a mistake. It happens, but it's not, it was not the majority. It was very much, very much systematic problems uh, of how things get handled. So I, I anyway, I, I do appreciate the the work that you're doing. It's incredible. Thank you. Because when you and I went, went into PT all those years ago, we didn't go into PT to say, I want to hurt people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't think any let healthcare me, provider does, right? Like, I feel like that's not a thing. Let me find out how thing. I can hurt somebody today, right? Yeah. That's just not how it works. We go to help people. We go to make people better, to move better, to live better, to make better lifestyle choices. And, um, you know, unfortunately, people have gotten burned out because of all the politics and insurance and all the regulation that surrounds healthcare. Yeah. Uh, do you still see patients? Are you still practicing? No, I do not see patients as a PT. Um, I will say that I do jump in um, and help be an extra set of hands if if someone needs to be transferred or you know ambulated or. Um, so I am still patient facing, but mm -hmm. I am not in the role of a physical therapist. I see. Do you miss it? Sometimes I miss it from the, because I work in inpatient rehab, which I love. And even as a therapist, I love, so I miss facilitating their movement and seeing that progress and being able to say my patient couldn't walk and now they can walk, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, 
But as a, would I go back to it? Probably not. Yeah. Actually, I say, I say probably not because you can never say never. Sure. <laughs> but do I have any desire to go back to the bedside? No. Uh, why is that? Um, because one reason is physical, like mm-hmm. lifting, bending, all of that with the patient. Yeah. Um, which, you know, can be hard on your body, especially because yeah. I haven't done it in a while, right? Um, mm-hmm. So making sure that I keep the patient safe from a body mechanics and keeping myself safe, right? right. From a body mechanics perspective. Um, and then secondly, I really like having that big picture perspective, mm-hmm. being able to see, I feel like in my current role, I can impact more patients than I could when I was seeing them one-on-one. Yeah. Yeah. I very much understand that. Uh, that's, yeah. that is a, a, huge reason why I want to do things like these interviews um, is to try and give a platform for people to get this information out. Um, it's it's hard when you have one-on-one. Yeah, I, I, you can make insane impacts on one individual's life, but then you can look around you in day-to-day society and watch somebody's walking pattern and go, man, that's a disaster waiting to happen. And you oh can't gosh. do anything you, about it. You're always a therapist when you're at a restaurant and you see somebody walking with that cane wrong. Yeah. In the wrong hand or yeah. the crutch is too high. You're like, oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, I can I feel like by the the fact that I can influence the people who are still treating patients, mm-hmm. I have more impact over more people. Yeah. And um it it helps me to use my brain and my clinical skills, expertise in a different way. You think differently because you think outside of your bubble. Yeah. No, it's, I, I love that. I think that's, that's a, I love the mission. Um, what do you, what do you envision for yourself going forward personally or professionally? Yeah. So I love process improvement. I love working to make systems safer. So um, I, I see myself doing that long-term, um, and what role I'm not sure what that role will look like long-term. Um, but I also am working to coach clinicians who want to move away from the bedside, but still use their clinical expertise, um, in a different way, still in healthcare to make that transition into healthcare quality. So that's a passion of mine, um, I want to help other people see what what is possible to stay within healthcare and use your clinical degree, mm-hmm. but get released mm-hmm. from the burnout and struggle that maybe they're experiencing, and then to really support them in that role. How do we? How do I help them to be successful in that new role so that they can impact the patients and the colleagues that they are working with? What does that transition look like? You've done it. You've gone from bedside to to healthcare quality. Like, is there formal training? Like, how do how how does that work? Yeah. So there is not formal training. Unfortunately, people don't know much about it, and so that's that's a huge mission of mine is to get more people aware of what healthcare quality is. But clinicians already have the transferable skills. They just have to be able to know how to articulate that on a resume. So I encourage people to volunteer for projects in which they're going to be a lead or maybe they're, um, they can impact some portion of patient care where they work, where it's, 
whether it's orthopedics or oncology or wherever they are, they can make an improvement that they can then use for their next role. Um, do they need a formal degree or certifications? No. Does it help? It helps sometimes or, you know, an extra course or two. But um, I think clinicians already have the, just from what we do anyway, we have those skills. We just have to know how to translate that into what the next employer is going to look for. That makes sense. Um, it resonates with me a lot. I've, I've, over the last couple of years, I've talked to a lot of people who have reached out to me about career transition. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's, I think we're so well-groomed as PTs. I don't want to speak for OTs and, and speech pathologists, but I'm, I imagine it's the same from our training that we need a, a curriculum vitae that is extremely fleshed out. We must have formal training. We must have these degrees and certifications. We must have these licenses or we can't do anything. And a lot of my transition was to technology field. Uh, it, what's interesting is just what we did as a job description, not not the job description of healthcare, but the job description of how do you interact with a person? How do you interact with a patient? How do you observe safety around the, the person? Uh, what is it to have a patient engage? What is it to have a person, a person reach a resolution or if they can't get better? then what is it for them to reach, set and reach their own goals? Uh, all of those kind of things are these transferable skills that there's a lot of jobs out there that do not require formal certification or education or training. And if you believe that, you are shooting yourself in the foot if you're looking to transition. And so I, I appreciate that I'm not alone in thinking that. It sounds like you're in the same boat with yeah. the people who might want to do what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think that's a common misperception is that we have to have an MBA or we have to get a health administration degree or certificate or, you know, all of these things, we already have the skills. We see patients, we multitask, we communicate with the interdisciplinary team. We use the electronic medical record. We lead by influence versus authority, mm -hmm. right? So we, we do all these things. We help train students. So I mean, there's so much that transfers, um, but I think people think, oh, I don't have it exactly the way this job description said it, yeah. and they can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. That is such a problem, uh, I think. And I, it's it's nobody's fault, right? We were trained through school, like, you must meet these requirements or you can't, right? It's very, very strict. And outside of healthcare, the world doesn't really work that way. <laughs> It's, are you capable of doing what the, the point of the job is? Irrelevant of one line in the job description. It's, it's can you do this role? It's not, can you do each line in what this says? Uh, I think yeah, it's important. And, and being able to communicate it to Adam, right? Because if we go into that next employer and says, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a great clinician and I saw 10 patients and they were all cardiac or ortho or whatever, they're going to say, what's that have to do with the job I want to hire you for? Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's being able to say the things that we do in a way that the other person's going to hear it. Mm -hmm. That was, I learned that lesson, my own uh, transition. I had, I had four interviews that I was immediately ruled out for. They were healthcare technology. And I leaned on the fact that I was a healthcare provider and that was their response. Like we're not hiring a PT. So good luck to you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
and it was it was a it was a tough lesson but it was very quickly learned to go right what it is to be a pt they don't know i need to sell myself in the manner of what skills that i can bring to the table that are coincidental from having been a pt and that's that was really important yeah i love i love the way you said that because <clears throat> will your background of pt help them 120% yeah yeah do they know what you do as a pt no 0% <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> Even if they've been to PT, they have no concept of what's going on behind the scenes and are work the inner workings, the gears grinding in our heads about what we're thinking about. So it's very true. Exactly. Uh, I alluded to it a little earlier about the concept of like having a platform to reach as many people as possible. And it sounds like you're doing that now. But I have a question that I ask everybody that I interview. Um I, I what is one thing, or I guess many things if you'd like, that you want others to know based on your time, either as a PT or healthcare quality or both? Yeah, Adam, I'm so glad you asked this question because it is so important to me for people to, when they, when they want to leave patient care or they want to make a career transition, to really identify what they want to do, what their passions are, what, what fuels them so that they can do work that they love and work that matters. I find that a lot of clinicians, when they want to exit patient care, throw darts at a board, get out, let me out. Anyone hire me, I'll take whatever you got. And we spend too much time at work to do work that we hate sure. or work that just pays the bills, mm -hmm. right? And so I'm so passionate about people doing, finding work that they love, work that they're passionate about. Um, and something where they can contribute to the world because we were created to work with purpose, right? And so if I had any advice for people who are in your audience or people who um, connect with the work that you're doing is do work that you love, mm -hmm. work that matters, work that gives you purpose uh, because we can affect so many people and so many other lives through the work that we do every day. That's a, a wonderful message. Uh, I cannot second it enough, right? That's it. it it's been uh, something that I've been thinking about a lot recently and how on the other side of it, if you're, once you get there you kind of can look back and go, man, I should have done this a lot sooner. And so I appreciate you advocating for that. Um, also, Brandy, I, can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. Uh, I don't know about you. It's been two and a half years since I've been in clinical practice full time. I still measure everything I do every day in seconds mm -hmm. because that whole billing structure we have <laughs> where like you don't, you get seven minutes of wiggle room and that's it. I still like if this one's going to take me one second and this is going to take me two seconds, I do the one second thing. I can't get past it. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time that you're taking out of your day to do this. Uh, and the message that you're that you're sharing. A um, couple of last questions. Mm -hmm. Where can people reach you if they have questions about anything that you've talked about today? Yeah, thank you so much. And I appreciate you having me on your podcast. Um, it's been a delight to chat with you. Um, but people can reach out to me or connect with me on LinkedIn at um, Brandy DPT, or you can find me at Brandy Wilkins um, on LinkedIn. Or you can see how I can support you in your journey on my website. And Adam will post that for you in the show notes. But it is www.definingpointcc.com. 
Great. So I I'd like to ask people like anything they'd like to plug. It sounds like there's something there with that website. Can you can you talk a little bit more about it? What are you doing there? Yeah. So um, I mentioned before that I coach clinicians on how to transition into a healthcare quality role. And so on the website, you'll find people will find free resources. Um, I have an academy that is um, where the doors are going to open in August. So if people want a group coaching program that's really going to take them through the exact steps for how to transition into a healthcare quality role, then they can check out that and get some more information for that there. Um, and I have some upcoming workshops for people. So lots of ways that I can that I can help and it's all there on the website for people to check out. That's incredible. That's really cool that you're doing that. It's it's you talk the game, but it sounds like you're also playing the game at the same time. You're getting you're getting those resources out there to people, offering it up. That's that's really cool. Thank um, you. I want to I want to help people, and I will tell people that I'm in it. I still do it, so I can understand where they are, and it's not just theory, right? Yeah, absolutely. Brandy, again, I I'm incredibly grateful to have the chance to talk to you, uh, listeners. If you're a healthcare provider of any kind and you are looking to transition into healthcare quality, you now have a resource. Uh, but also, if you are willing to be interviewed or if anyone out there listening would like to ask any questions, you can reach me at nerdhealth at gmail.com or on Twitter at nerd4health. That is nerd, the number four health. And until next time, I ask all of you to join me in taking a little time each day to try to learn something new or grow as a person in some small way signing off for today.